This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. If you are out there building a business and you're going up against some very large, very entrenched interests, it certainly couldn't help to have somebody like Michael Lewis write a book about your company. And uh, in fact, IEX Group was at the center of Michael Lewis's Flash Boys, if you recall. But uh, the company is finding that it, just having your name put in some highbrow literature, it's not exactly a guarantee of success. Alex Osipovich, Wall Street Journal reporter, has written about the company, and he joins us today. Alex, how you doing? Pretty good. Thanks, Paul. So, uh, should we talk about this a little bit, Grosser? Stephen Grosser? Oh, thanks for introducing me. I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, I didn't introduce myself either. I just started talking. No, you just you started know. going on one of your rants. No, I, I, I think what's interesting is whether, you know, sort of Michael Lewis set, uh, you know, the level so high that in some ways it was inevitable it was going to be difficult for them to reach. Because anyone who read that book expected, I think, big things or was hoping for big things yeah. from, you know, IEX. Yeah. T- tell us a little bit about IEX and, and sort of. The, the, it's almost like a, a windmill tilting company in the uh, stock exchange, right? Yeah, well, IEX, as anybody who's read Flash Boys would know, is basically uh, started by these guys from RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, who uh, realized at one point that, you know, uh, there seem to be weird things going on in the stock market. When you're putting on a trade for a big customer, the price somehow seems to move away from you a little bit. And they basically suspected that what was going on was some sort of pernicious high-frequency trading strategies done by these guys who trade thousands of shares in fractions of a second. And uh, they basically started to design an exchange uh, that was uh, built had built-in features to prevent those types of gaming strategies. And they got a lot of favorable publicity from Michael Lewis. Uh, and then uh, they applied to become a full-fledged stock exchange. They got it. They got that status last year. And now they are out there. They have raised money. They've gotten a lot of press, and they have about two percent of the market. And they were hoping to have how much? You know, by two thousand and seventeen. Yeah. So, uh, according to uh, sources have spoken to the Wall Street Journal, uh, they initially projected to have eight percent market share, or actually even more than eight percent by twenty seventeen. Uh, in fact, they had two point two percent last month. So. And, and that was based on getting approval. Uh, to be fair, for the to be an exchange in two thousand fifteen, right? Yeah, the whole process of get, them getting approved as an exchange dragged on a really long time. There was a lot of opposition to it, and uh, it slowed them down. But still, you know, even if you kind of look at the trajectory that they've been on, it's hard to picture them hitting eight percent next year. So why are they why are they kind of stuck at two percent? What, what's happening here? So. A big part of this has to do with uh, the way that other exchanges operate and IEX's view of that. Other exchanges pay rebates for trades. So uh, certain they basically will char- pay you a rebate to send an order to your exchange while also charging fees for other types of orders. And it's a very complex system that's called maker-taker. And every other exchange basically uses this. And what it has, the effect it has is that it kind of inflates the volumes that you have on your exchange. You have a lot of trading activity. Uh, and that's why New York Stock Exchange, BATS, and NASDAQ all have substantial volumes. IX points to that and says, we don't want to do that. They say that rebates are corrupting because essentially what that means is if you're a broker who's got a custom order, you're deciding what to do with it, you could send it to the exchange where you get the best quality execution or you could send it to the exchange that will pay you the highest rebate. And this this is actually in some ways the heart of 
high I mean, there are high frequency firms that really do try to collect the rebates as their strategy, right? Yeah. High frequency trading firms have a number of different strategies, but there have definitely been some in the past uh, and quite possibly now that are based on collecting that rebate. The uh, kind of core strategy that a lot of high frequency trading firms do, and this is frankly, fairly benign, it's not seen as a bad thing for the markets, is market making. So going and posting a lot of buy and sell orders for the same securities and creating the market, that's what it is. Uh, And by doing that, you can collect rebates from the exchanges and it incentivizes it. Defenders of rebates say that's great because it means that you have just a lot of prices being quoted at all times on all exchanges. IX doesn't have that, so they actually do worse on certain metrics based on how many visible posted displayed prices you have on the exchange. Now, what has been the sort of reaction? I mean, I, reading Michael Lewis's book, there are a lot of the institutional big fund firms that felt they were being taken advantage of by the high-frequency traders uh, previously. And they seem supportive or not excited to have an IEX enter enter the fray, I guess. How has their reaction been? How much are they using IEX? I mean, do you have any sense of that? Well, there is no question that buy-side firms have been the biggest fans of IEX, and they've been big supporters. There are a number of buy-side firms that are investors in IEX, and in my conversations with buy-side firms that are not indirect investors, they still are pretty big fans too. The thing is, the the structure of the markets is not completely up to them. They they interact through the markets through brokers who have all these incentives of, well, do we route to the exchange with the biggest rebate? Do we route to our own dark pool that we run, which is another kind of conflict of interest that I think is causing a big problem for IEX. Uh, And so even though these buy-side firms would like IEX to have a bigger share of the market, it's not really up to them to do it. So what exactly... You mentioned that you know buy side firms like them. I mean, what is sort of the broader, to use a really awkward term that I hate, but I can't think of anything better. Like, what is the value proposition that they're like? What are they bringing to the table that makes this worthwhile? And is it an issue of them not really building a better mousetrap, or have they built a better mousetrap and they're just really going up against these big players? You know, is it really like a Davy and Goliath kind of thing? I'm just trying to get again at why they're kind of not catching on as much as as they thought they would. Well, I think part of this, uh, frankly, it goes back to Flash Boys. Flash Boys set up colossally high expectations for them. If the book hadn't come out, they might be kind of a little success story that you know didn't get that much attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think it's just very hard for them to reach the kind of level of expectations they got as a result of the book, which incidentally has been optioned for movies and possibly can be adapted into a Hollywood movie at some point. Can we talk about display prices? Because sure. that was, that was I think, an, another sort of issue that they were facing. And you touched on it before, uh, their, you know, the prices that they're offering. How, how much is that sort of hindering? I mean, and you can sort of take us back through. They went from, you know, IEX was a dark pool up mm-hmm. until it got approval to an exchange. And now they're, you know, have to actually show their prices or a certain yeah. portion of their prices. <clears throat> so just for basics here, a dark pool is a place where you can – do stock trades, and the orders posted in the pool aren't publicly broadcast. An exchange, an exchange can have dark orders, but the majority of orders on most exchanges are uh, displayed. And so, a dark pool is a good place to get big, chunky trades done because you can do do that trade, and 
you don't tip off the market and saying like, "Hey, I'm about to like sell a whole bunch of Apple shares," you know. So, uh, what exchanges like to judge themselves on exchanges other than IX is how much do, do they have a tight quote in a stock? Essentially, are there a lot of is there a lot of interest at the uh, highest possible? Uh, buying price, low as possible, selling price, uh, are those numbers close to each other? Is there a tight spread? And that results from a lot of displayed orders. IX doesn't do that well. IX doesn't have tight quoted spreads. And the other exchanges like to say, hey, our displayed prices are better. What IX says is that that's a little bit of a myth that you have the best displayed prices because just because you have a really good quote on a stock doesn't mean that you can actually execute at that price. The price could move away from you, as right. Brad Katsuyama, the hero of Flash Boys, discovered. And that, and that was the whole point about you know the criticism of high frequency trading and how they were taking advantage. Is they would, you know, you go in and try to buy at one price, and all of a sudden you could end up buying it at a dollar more or you know fifty cents more, right? Yeah. Basically, the fear was that high frequency tra- traders would take a little nibble out of your trade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hey, uh, Alex. Before we let you go. I don't want to make it sound like you know these guys are completely failing. I mean, they, they are building a business. It just isn't building as fast as maybe they thought. Where do they go from here? What's their next steps? Well, the big plan they have right now is to become a listings exchange. Uh, and so essentially, starting in October, assuming they, assuming they get all the needed approvals, companies that are currently listed on New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ could switch to IAX. Uh, and... In terms of practical value, this means IX would be able to collect listing fees, taking those away from NYSE and NASDAQ, and it would also get more volumes because of the way the market's structured. Because uh, a listing exchange runs the opening and closing auctions every day in a stock, and those are a big chunk of volume. So that could help boost their numbers. All right. Yeah. Alex Ozapo- Osipovich, thank you for coming in. It's a few times. I know you're busy today, so we appreciate it. Well, yeah. Thanks for making sense of my inarticulate questions. <laughs> right. uh, hey, everyone, stay tuned. Excuse me. Stay tuned. Don't go away. When we come back, we're going to talk about tech stocks. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Make sure to check out the Future of Everything podcast because the future is closer than you think. All new episodes each Friday in June. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio in New York City. And uh, look, you look at tech stocks and you say to yourself, oh my God, tech stocks are the greatest thing in the world. I've got to get in uh, until Friday, in which case you started saying, oh my God, tech stocks are really a terrible pill. I've got to get out of them right now. Uh, which is the truth? That's what we're going to discuss next. And to do that, we have brought in two reporters with us. Miriam Gottfried is Heard on the Street columnist. Hello. Hello, how are you? And Akani Otani is a Wall Street Journal markets reporter. Akani, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're, we're glad to have you. And uh, Stephen Grosser, well, just want to I mean, start it, us off? Not here, everyone was like, I have to get into these fang stocks. That's true. There was one reporter, one heard on the street columnist, who, I, was it the day before? Or was it that day? 
it, my story ran that early that morning, but I had written it a couple of days yeah, before, no, to be honest. I, I, I remember you, you and Ken were been talking about it for a while. Yeah. So a uh, perfect timing. Well, you should tell us what the story is. I timed, well, I'm going to get there. Oh, okay. Friday morning, her story publishes. It says, watch out for Fang Inc. Mm. And there what you was go. The, what were we watching out for? Well, basically, um, I was just pointing out that the stock price appreciation for the four stocks, that's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and um, Alphabet. Alphabet. Google, right. Google is the ticker. Right. Google is the ticker, so they, they, they name it by the ticker. Um, that The stock price appreciation had gotten ahead of the earnings growth expectation. Or, the, you know, basically, you can go back and you can look at estimates for earnings for 2017 and 2018, and you can see how that's changed over time. And in theory, the stock price should rise in accordance with that, because really what you're valuing is the stream of the future cash flows of the company, and you should be saying, okay, earnings expectations are going up, so my what I'm willing to pay for this company is also going up by the same rate. Right. But it, but what you saw was the earnings expectations were going up for most of the companies, except Amazon. And the stock price was going up a lot more. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think I, you could just see that some momentum was at work. Yeah. Were you surprised that you, see, you were proven so quickly uh, right with your well, warning? Well, that morning when I was on my way into work, I looked at my phone and I saw that Goldman Sachs had sent me this research report that was very bearish on the tech stock, those same tech stocks. And I forwarded it to my editor, and I said, I guess we were good with our timing, because our story had run at 5.30 that morning, and there was Goldman Sachs agreeing with us. And, you know, I, I don't want to say whether it was the journal or Goldman that caused the market <laughs> <laughs> reaction, but maybe it was a combination of the two. We're both very powerful. Right. Or it's just, you know, look, all you're really doing is pointing out these sort of fundamental That's factors. That's all we were doing. Yeah. Nothing changed. In terms of the outlook for the companies, what changed is a spotlight was being shown on it. And I think the other thing, too, is it doesn't like and we've talked about this a lot this whole entire year. The this trade had become perhaps the most crowded trade around and it doesn't take a lot for the selling to start uh, or, you know, the selling to pick up once it gets started when you're that you have that many people crowded into it. And one of the questions, in a, in a, Kanye, I, w- I want to bring you in now, is is this a sign of people, you know, a, a sort of a reversal in the market and people are going to switch out of tech? Or is this more, are people viewing the sell-off that we saw Friday and a little bit into today as more of a buying opportunity? I mean, I'm sure you're going to have some people declare that this is the end of the tech trade, but it seems like a lot of the folks I've spoken to, at least, kind of view it as um, just an inevitability. Um, A lot of momentum was brought up, um, and these stocks had run up so far this year. Uh, Bank of America last month said, I think, investors polled viewed tech stocks as being the most crowded trade. Um, you know, surpassing other things like the dollar, which a lot of people had been bullish about at the beginning of the year. So I think a lot of people are viewing this as just a sort of natural pullback after, you know, months and months and months of tech stocks really outpacing the rest of the market, but not necessarily a sign of the end of the tech rally. Yeah, and it almost, I mean, you, you can almost see this 
kind of a trade become an article of faith among investors? You know, I'm got to buy these stocks. These are the good stocks. Either when things are hot and they're like the hot, you know, growth stocks, even if they're not growing all that much, people will come up with that rationale. Or when things start to turn down, you will, I guarantee it, you will start to see people talk about these being safe haven plays. Well, no, you know? they, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about this a lot today. If you look at the funds that Apple, yeah. I think the the biggest of the, the, the you know these these te- big tech firms, it is in value stock right. funds. It is in quality stock funds. It's in low vol, low volatility funds. It's in growth funds. It is everything to everyone basically. <laughs> and that I mean, and that's a problem because I mean, like, if you're getting to a low vol fund and you also have Apple and your growth, those two shouldn't be together. Well, that's an interesting point that I think was brought up in the Goldman Sachs report, which I uh, did read um, during the day on Friday because I was like, I really want to hear what these guys have to say. They said that the volatility was so low in these tech stocks that they were it was basically a sign that the market was treating them like consumer staples. And the problem with that is that when the volatility becomes so low and when you start treating them like a stable staple, you ignore the risks that are inherent in these companies. They're cyclical companies. That's just what they are. Apple in particular. (laughs) Here we come come with a new iPhone cycle. cycle, It's all reliant on that one thing being a success. And so in no way is this like, you know, Campbell's soup. It's not it's not like a product. It's not a staple. Right. Right. It can be a really successful, fast-growing company, and that's sort of you know, you know, you can't blame these uh, institutional investors for investing in it because if they weren't, if you know, their investors would come to them and say, "You're not doing a good job for me. You're yeah. missing out on this huge yeah. rally." No, I mean that was one of the things. I mean, the, another stat that came out earlier in the week was fund managers. For the first time, active fund managers, 52% were, or not first time, the, the, it was the largest percentage of active fund managers were beating their benchmark since uh, the financial crisis. It was 52% this year. And the common thread was they own big tech stocks. And, the, and, and, they, and what they were doing was they were piling in and overweighting their funds to these big tech stocks. And that paid off early in the year. Right, and it paid off until basically until Friday. Friday yeah, right. <laughs> you know, if you got in on Friday, you are you are really regretting that decision <laughs> for the first time. But if well, not, like you said, Akani, like if you're not like, no one's really panicking over these moves, even though the losses in tech on Friday were really large, one day losses, and today they are down again. Monday they're down again. But like you said, I mean, no one is really you know sweating this, are they? No, I mean, I don't think there's a sense of catastrophe, you know, coming yeah. into the markets. Um, I think tech stocks are still uh, expected to post pretty good earnings growth for the second quarter. I think it's supposed to be the second uh, biggest earnings growth of all S&P sectors. Um, and uh, the people I've talked to are just skeptical that we're going to see this huge rotation into value stocks all of a sudden. Um, you know, they're saying... You know, energy might be doing well today, but over the course of this entire year, it's been doing horribly. Right. Um, and other things like financials have really given up a lot of their post-election gains. So um, it seems difficult to see that we're gonna we're gonna see this whole rotation back into value stocks. I think people do see this as one of the few areas of reliable growth. So it's not like they're consistent in everything, but they're consistent growers. 
um, in terms of earnings, at least for right now. <laughs> and that's, you know, I think a big focus for, for investors because there aren't that many areas of growth. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting, though. I mean, you talk about certainly Netflix and Amazon, to an extent, I'm sure Apple, too. They are spending a lot of money to build mm. these businesses out. They're spending uh, – Netflix and Amazon especially. And are, Amazon's earnings growth – Expectations are falling. I just want to, yeah. yeah, they're not going up. But people don't focus on earnings when it comes to Amazon. Yeah. So it's a bit of a separate case. But yeah, right. Netflix is investing a ton. Ton. Yeah. It, it will be interesting to see what happens if there's any kind of downturn, any kind of, you know, cyclical turn. Yeah. Or if Netflix, you know, for example, has a couple of bombs. You know, all their series have been really well regarded so far. What mm-hmm. if, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I think that's think? overstated. Yes, I think that's well overstated. Really? Yeah. I, they're but producing. It's, it's they're enough. How about enough? Are really well regarded with they're a lot few. of these stocks. Though it's important to remember what's dri- what drives the stocks. Yeah. With Netflix, it's not earnings. No. It's not revenue. It's subscribers. Right. So if so, that's the number that they have to beat on, and they know that, and that's why they go out and they spend big money to do this because they know how to drive subscribers. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Facebook's a sort of similar way. It's you know mobile ad revenue, right? Yeah, well, I think Facebook is people are now more reliant on earnings at Facebook, yeah. and because it's that, actually it actually has right. pretty big earnings. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I had heard on the street can continue to go out and rail against not having earnings because we like to look at things you know from a traditional discounted cash right. flow perspective when we're valuing stocks, but you know, there's always going to be other factors that cause people to jump on the bandwagon. And one of the things, just before we wrap up, I think that's interesting now is uh, is just looking at the semiconductor space that had been one of the top performing industries or sub-industry or sub-sectors, I should say, um, you know, f- for the past year and a half. They took a bigger beating than the big tech giants on Friday. Um, the ones that took the biggest hit are now in positive as we record this on Monday afternoon. So that bodes, I think, to the idea that this is really a buy the dip for tech stocks. Everything's a buy the dip, right? I no, mean, I mean, that for that, God's that, sakes. But this gets back to what we talked about on right. Friday. When you have this much liquidity in this market, right. when you have this much right. central bank money, right. like, you know, this is what happens. There's enough, you know, there's just so much money sloshing around that people go in and buy the dip every it, time. It, it and they've a, been doing this for years. It's a buy the dip world. You can't eat. The dip starts and people start saying buy the dip. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But the stocks were still down today. I thought they might be up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll see. They'll buy the dip eventually. All right. Akani, Miriam, thank you very much for your time. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Everyone, thank you for listening. As always, we appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you soon.